<clears throat> invite you to turn in, in your Bible tonight to Genesis chapter 6. Genesis chapter 6. We are in our second sermon in the series of Old Testament signs. Uh, we're looking at... Um, just Old Testament things that point us specifically to Jesus Christ. We mentioned last week that uh, too uh, easily people sort of assume the Old Testament is, is interesting, has some great stories, but not really essential. Um, and we just need to re- remember that the Old Testament is most of our Bibles, if you just kind of go through the pages, and it's not just random things that happened while the world was waiting for Jesus to, to appear. Uh, that these are um, the acts and uh, works of God sp- specifically so that when Jesus shows up, we'll have an understanding of who he is. And, and to uh, try to understand who Jesus is without knowing your Old Testament leaves you really severely handicapped. It'd be like uh, going to see a 3D movie without the glasses. Uh, you could probably make out what's going on, but you're going to get a headache, and, it's, and you're not going to get the depth and the beauty of it uh, without knowing your Old Testament. And so it's... Uh, uh, to, uh, we're going to be just doing this short series as we lead up to Christmas, uh, seeing the glory of Jesus as he's revealed in Old Testament scriptures. Last week we started with Genesis 3.15, which um, Ferguson said the rest of the Bible is just a footnote to Genesis 3.15 where God promises to put enmity between the, the line of the serpent and the line of the woman. There's going to be a war, spiritual war on earth, and it's going to culminate with a one, the, the, the seed of the woman who will crush the serpent's head. So we have grace and enmity, and those principles now are, are going to, we're going to see again in the story of Noah. We're going to uh, look at Noah, uh, Noah, Genesis chapter 6, beginning at verse 5, and we're going to read through the end of the chapter. Let's give our attention to God's word. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. These are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless uh, in his generation. Noah walked with God. And Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with violence. And God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. And God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh, for the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. Make yourself an ark of gopher wood, make rooms in the ark, and cover it inside and out with pitch. This is how you are to make it. The length of the ark, 300 cubits. Its breadth, 50 cubits. Its height, 30 cubits. Make a roof for the ark and finish it to the cubit above. And set the door of the ark in its side. Make it with lower, second, and third decks. For behold, I will bring a flood of waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh in which is the breath of life under heaven. Everything that is on earth shall die. But I will establish my covenant with you, and you shall come into the ark, you and your sons, your wife, and your sons' wives with you, and every living thing of all flesh shall bring two of every sort 
into the ark to keep them alive with you. They shall be male and female of the birds according to their kinds and of the animals according to their kinds, of every creeping thing on the ground according to its kind. Two of every sort shall come into you to keep them alive. Also take with you every sort of food that is eaten and store it up. It shall serve as food for you and for them. Noah did this. He did all that the God had commanded him. Let's ask the Lord to bless his word. Oh God in heaven, I pray that uh, tonight you would open your word to us, that it would be sweet, it would be good news, it would be precious, it would uh, convict us, it would show us the wonder of Jesus and draw us to him. I pray it in Jesus' name, amen. The story of the flood, of course, is one of the best known stories in all the Bible. It's also maybe one of the um, most ridiculed stories in the Bible by, um, by many people, I suppose, who, who think that it's, it's, uh, it's just foolish. Uh, but even among Christians, the key point and purpose of the story is often missed. Um, yeah, the story can be told as a moral tale of the importance of obedience, and good things happen to those who just do what God says. God says, Noah, build the boat, and so Noah built the boat, and, uh, and he was blessed. It can be taught that way. Uh, others focus on the flood as a scientific fact and uh, interested primarily in its usefulness for uh, combating Darwinism. Uh, many are intrigued by the ark and the animals and, and how they got them all in there. You can go down to Kentucky and, and, uh, and find out how that works. <clears throat> but none of those things, you see, are the purpose or the point of the story. Uh, the, uh, the story of, uh, of Genesis 6 through uh, 7 and 8, it's really not a story about the flood. It's a story about Noah, and more specifically, it's a story about Noah's God. Uh, it's, a, it's a story about God's particular grace where he reaches out and rescues a man and his family and, and in his grace preserves that man and his family, keeping covenant with those whom he's chosen to save and making the world new as he washes away all that is evil and brings Noah and his family out into a new world. You can, you can hear the refrains of the gospel uh, in the story of Noah and the ark. Uh, the context, of course, is a world where we're seeing what God promised in Genesis 3.15 playing out. There is um, there's death and ruin in the world as the seed of the serpent is having its way, and yet there's also grace and promise. Mochier points out, in the post-fall world, Two principles operated in tension with each other, the element of promise and the reign of death. And so we find the world now has advanced. Don't know exactly how long this is since Genesis 3.15, but we see that the earth is full of wickedness. Chapter, verse 5, God sees as he does. Nothing escapes his notice. And he sees that every intention of man's heart is only evil continually. Man has become thoroughly corrupt. And that's the specific word that uh, is used, that God uses and that Moses uses as he's writing this story to describe the earth. Genesis uh, 6 verse 11 and 12, you have that word 
coming over and over. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and it was filled with violence. And God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. When you see a word just popping up like that over and over, you know that uh, it matters. Well, what, is that, what does it mean that it's corrupt? Corrupt means that it, is, it has rotted all the way through. If uh, maybe you picked apples this year and uh, you had good intentions of getting to them and, and uh, canning them, making applesauce, whatever, but you left them sit or maybe you, you left a bag somewhere, you, you, you forgot about it in the, in the trunk of the car and, and you'll go and you'll open it up and you'll notice at some point they're rotted. They're corrupt. There's mold growing on them and they've just turned uh, bad colors and very soft and there's nothing you can do with them except throw them away. The deer probably won't even eat them. They're corrupt, good for nothing. That's the word. It means, you see, that the world has, in, 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 that mankind has been ruined by sin. It's corrupt all the way through. Every intent of his heart is only evil continually all the time. And so the point you see is that when God sends the flood to wipe them away, to blot them out, uh, he's destroying something that's already ruined, already destroyed. The flood is the only appropriate response. This isn't God just uh, condemning something that had a, really had a lot of promise. It really had some potential. It was going quite well, actually, and, and the Lord just ran out of patience. That's not the picture whatsoever. The flood, the angels would go, finally, because mankind is rotted through and through. And the earth is filled with violence, violence against fellow man. There would be murder and abuse and oppression. It's filled with violence against God and his law, God and his, uh, his revealed and created uh, will, the law that he's put on men's hearts and minds. And so uh, men would be doing violence to, to God himself, clothing themselves with violence as they sinned against one another. The, book of, uh, the prophet Malachi judges the people of Israel for, the, uh, for clothing themselves with violence as they divorce their wife. It's a violation of God's will. It's a violation of God's purpose. It's a violation of his character as we sin against one another. And so that's what's going on in the world. Interestingly, um, really fascinatingly, the, the people who were alive in that day did not have any sense of this. Jesus says in uh, Matthew 24, 37, as as uh, were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking and marrying and giving in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark. And they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away. So will be the coming of the Son of Man. And so you, you, Jesus says people in those days were just, they were just living their life and as far as they could see, it was good. Sure, things were not as they, as they wished. Everyone has a yearning for Eden. It would be nice uh, to have uh, life as they really wanted it, but hey, everybody's just doing the best they can, and they're eating, and they're drinking, and they're marrying, and they're giving in marriage. If you would ask them, you know, how do you think the world is going, people would give you to have different options, different responses, but no one would, said, would have said, the only thing you can do with this is blot it out. It just, it was natural, it was normal, they were used to it, it was, it was just the world. 
But you see, when God looks at the world and he sees this, <clears throat> the violence, when he sees the corruption, when he sees people living as if there is no God, uh, people living as if uh, they, uh, this is our world and if, uh, as if our bodies are our bodies to do with as we, as we well please, uh, as if God has not created the heaven and the earth, as if he is not all glorious, as if he does not deserve all praise and all obedience and that anything short of that is a cosmic crime, when people just live as they please, well, it's something's got to give. And friends, if you just think about the world that we live in today, don't we see these things? Uh, people living with no reference to God, no thought of God, or if they do think of God, it's to blaspheme him, it's to challenge him, it's to charge him with wrong. Someone asked an atheist, uh, I cannot remember his name, can see his face clearly, who uh, proudly, you know, declares there is no God, and, and the man asks him, well, what, what, if, what about if you're wrong? I mean, what happens if you, what would happen if, you know, you die and you, you suddenly discover there actually is a God? What would you say then? And this atheist said, I would say, how dare you? How dare you create a world like this and people suffer like this? Who do you think you are? That's what he said. I promise you, when that man sees the face of God, he will not be saying, I dare you. How dare you? But you see, people can say things like that because just wickedness, a God-hating rebellion. And that's what we see going on in the world today. We've had a conference just this weekend about gender identity issues and how to address that. And uh, gender identity issues are not political issues, first and foremost. They're not even social issues, first and foremost. They are, first and foremost, theological issues. Who gets to define who we are? And who gets to define the chief end of man? Who gets to say why we exist and what we ought to give our lives to and for and how we ought to use our bodies? And how we ought to use our money. Remember, remember Carl just said that, that it, you know, consumerism is just as deadly as, as uh, pornography and eroticism. Materialism is, is just as offensive to God, just as much a warping of the purpose uh, that God, for which God made man. We weren't made to consume stuff. And yet, we just sort of accept that as, as normal and natural. See, these are all theological questions, and, and, and we can easily live as if the answers the world gives are just normal answers. Well, God sees a corrupt, a corrupt world. He sees rot that needs to be removed. And, and so when he looks at the world in Noah's day, he promises to do just that. I will blot out man. It means to wipe away completely, just to remove. He's going to destroy every living thing. Because... It's rotted. And there will be people today, again, who will hear this story and just think, how, how dare he? Who, what gives God the right to do this, to destroy every living creature? What, what gives him the right? Well, God tells us what gives him the right. Uh, I will blot out every man whom I have created. He's the creator. Does not the potter have the right to say, to the pot, to the clay, does he not have the right to do with the clay as he chooses? Is, does God have the right to be God? And so God promises to destroy all flesh. But there is a covenant promise and grace 
that appears in the story. Verse 18, it's the first time the word covenant shows up in the Bible. It's not the first covenant we have in Scripture, I don't believe, but it's, it's the first time the word appears, and, and uh, it appears in this wonderful um, scene of devastation and judgment as God promises he's going to bring judgment, and the world completely deserves it, and yet from uh, mysteriously, magnificently, grace appears. I will establish my covenant with you, verse 18, and you shall come into the ark, you, your sons, your wife, and your son's wife with you. Here we see the fruit of God's promise to Eve, that the world isn't just going to grind to a halt um, because of the, the, the gross weight of sin. There is going to be a preserving grace of God and a, and a preserved people of God. It's not just going to be a, a tale full of sound and fury signifying nothing. There's going to be divine purpose. And that purpose is going to be gracious as God makes covenant with Noah. Uh, we find in Scripture this idea of covenant. And um, I, really, if you've never read anything about it, uh, O. Palmer Robinson has a very good book uh, on, on covenants. It really helps us to understand uh, Christ and God's way of saving in the, in the Old Testament, you'll find covenants and contracts that existed between people, between equals, and it's just simply a matter of making, uh, making promises and, and, and agreements and taking obligations. So uh, I will do this and you will do that, and, and this will be the penalty if we fail to, to fulfill our obligations. But, but these contracts are between equals. Well, when it comes to God making covenant with men, it cannot be covenant between equals and so God has to come and, and make a covenant where he bears all the weight. Uh, Machir again says, in the case of, div of divine covenants, mutuality disappears. The relationship between the sovereign transcendent God and those on whom he wills to bestow his promises is totally asymmetrical. It comes about without discussion or negotiation. It is an imposition of grace. I love that phrase. An imposition of grace. God doesn't sit down with Noah and say, let's, let's figure this out. How, how can we make this work? Let's negotiate. There's no negotiation. He just, he just comes to Noah because he found favor. You see, the, the world, uh, we're told in Genesis 6 through 5, 5 and 7, that it's been, it's been shot, ruined, but... One of the most beautiful words in Scripture, verse 8. But... Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. And the word can be translated as grace. Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. That, that, that God came and imposed his grace upon him. Now, there are some who, who would say, well, if you ask the question, why does Noah get grace? It'd be, you could look at verse 9 and say, well, it says that Noah was uh, a righteous man, blameless in his generation, and he walked with God. And that, that's why he got grace. But of course, you see, if that's why he got grace, then it wasn't grace. If he got grace because he's blameless, because he's righteous, then it's not grace. It's, it's God paying what he owes in a sense. And it would violate everything we know about God's grace in Scripture. See, Moses sets up the story in a way that we'll recognize that that's not what's going on. The dynamic isn't God looked around and found, hey, there's somebody who's worthy of rescuing Verse 8 says, Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Machi again, Machi uh, looked in 40 times, he sees that, that phrase, found favor in the eyes of, in the Old Testament, 40 times. And his, the basic premise is always that um, 
the man who finds favor in the, so if X finds favor in the eyes of Y, what it means is that Y is just going to shower grace on X. To find favor in the eyes of means that you don't deserve it. You, don't, you haven't earned it. And that's what we find here. Um, Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord, unmerited grace. Then verse 9, these are the generations of Noah. So, and that's a, that's a phrase that shows up in the book of Genesis. I mean, anytime we're going to start a new story, it'll say, these are the generations of. This is the story about. You see, verse 8 comes first, and then, and then verse 9, to say that um, Noah's story emerges out of the grace of God. And Noah's character emerges out of the grace of God. He's not a blameless, righteous man because he just screwed up the willpower to be somehow better than his neighbor's. He was a man, and, and the problem with the world was men, all flesh, and, and yet God showed grace to Noah. And, and, and out of that grace comes this story of this man that God saves and uses to save others. And it's exactly, you see, that divine initiative that God points to in verse 18, where he says, I will establish my covenant with you. I think a better um, translation would be, I will implement my covenant with you. To establish uh, gives the sense of starting something that hadn't already been there. But the, the, the Hebrew actually literally means to make rise, to stand, to make to stand. So, so God is saying, uh, we're going to implement now, we're going we're to make happen the covenant that has already been established. I'm going to put it into action. And that's what you find happening. God comes and instructs Noah in his favor. God speaks to Noah the way that Noah and his family can be saved. Build yourself an ark of gopher wood. And God gives them instructions exactly how to do that and, uh, how, and how to provide them for the animals and bring the animals. And, and Noah spends 120 years doing that, living by faith. Uh, people around him undoubtedly jeering, thinking he's lost his mind. And yet Noah goes about because he believes God's word. It's what he's got. It's all he has is the word of God. And God's grace keeps him in that faith, and, and Noah builds the ark, and then in chapter 7, we have the flood scene. And God uh, commands Noah to go up into the ark, and then um, God closes the door. Noah and his family enter in. Noah's, Noah's uh, his wife and his children and their wives are saved with him and, in a sense, through him. We don't read anything about their faith. We don't, we don't read anything anything about them other than that they were Noah's children. And yet they are rescued by the work of another. And, uh, and the ark, notice, is the one and only means of surviving the judgment. There are no other options. No one outside of that ark will survive the flood. Not a single person. And no one inside the ark will perish. Not a single person. The line of demarcation could not be more clear. The ark is the only means of being saved. Outside of it, there's no possibility uh, at all of being saved. And inside, you are certainly saved to the uttermost. What a wonderful picture of the way God saves in Christ. That he's given away, one way. There's no other name under heaven by which men must be saved. He's provided an ark. 
in our Savior. And no one outside of Christ will be saved, and no one inside of Christ will be lost. It cannot be because God is the one doing the work. And so then God closes the door. You can read the story. What a solemn, somber moment. For 120 years, Moses has been building the ark, and certainly he's been preaching uh, to people about what God has said he's going to do. He's going to send a flood, and an ark has been is being built to provide a means of escape, and no one believed him. And then the day came when the preaching stopped, and, and the door was closed by the hand of God, and the rain began, and there was no more chance to be saved. And, and people tried, didn't they? They beat against the door, and they, they screamed for Noah to, to open the door, but it wasn't Noah's door to open. It was God's door. And when the Lord had closed the door, then the door was was closed, and people perished. There's a day of grace, friends. There's a day of salvation, and there's a day when the door to salvation will close. And people who have been born and raised in the church and who heard the gospel, when that day happens, they will know what is happening. They will know the door has been closed. And they will scream and beg because they know the story and they know what's coming and they will, they will beg that, that the, a friend or a, a family member, a husband, a wife will, will open the door, will rescue them. And it will not be possible because God has closed the door. And then judgment will come. And so the heavens opened up and, and the rain fell and the fountains of the great deep burst forth Chapter 7, verse 11, rain fell on the earth 40 days and 40 nights. God kept his word. But of course, if you continue reading the story, that's not the end of it, is it? That, that God preserved Noah. And the rains covered the earth and all flesh died as God had said, but then the, then the waters began to recede. And, 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 and finally, Noah and his family stepped out onto the shores of a new heaven and a new earth in a sense. It was a, it was a new creation. Not a perfected creation. There'd still be sin. Noah, uh, the, the first thing they do is they have a sacrifice of, of thanks to God and acknowledgement of his grace. And there's, there's going to be sin, and you're not long into the, the story before you see that sin unfolding in tragic ways. But, but it's a picture for us of what's coming. That, that the ark is leading somewhere. There, there is a new heaven and a new earth, and, and the, the ark will bring us safely there. And the rainbow that God gives to Noah and his family, that he will never uh, wipe out the, the earth again before the, the coming of Jesus Christ with water. Peter says it's going to happen in the, end, the last days with fire. But the, but the rainbow that appears is God's sign of his promise, his faithfulness, and his grace. And in Revelation chapter 4, 3, you'll find a rainbow again around the throne of Jesus Christ. God has promised in Christ that the war between God and man can be resolved as we come and humble ourselves and give ourselves to Christ. And so how, what, what are the things that we, need, we, we can learn and, and need to learn? Well, we, we need to recognize that the world that we live in is, is so similar to the world of Noah's day. And, and that's not alarmist to say. It's the same. Um, sin is sin, and sinners are, are just, there's nothing new under the sun. And so by, by the grace of God, there is a remnant in the world. There is a church of Jesus Christ, and it is growing, praise God. Millions and millions of people name the name of Jesus Christ. Praise the Lord. Yet you look at our uh, culture particularly, 
You see the decay, you see the rot, you see the corruption, and, and the, the, the story of, of Noah and his God just encourages us to open our eyes and see it for what it is. It is not normal American lifestyle. The, the, the greed, the perversion, the materialism, the consumerism, the eroticism, the, the, the rampant individualism, um, all the things that, that stand against God's created purpose, the sexual abuse that we're hearing about, it's rot, it's rot, it's not normal life. Learn to read the world and to see the world the way God sees the world. Not to say there aren't multiplied instances of goodness and grace and as the sun rises every morning and, and God is faithful in the seasons and, and there's common grace even that God gives to people so that they can, they can function and flourish and, and even do things that benefit others. But there's a reality of rot in this world and it is going to be responded to. And people will scoff at that, won't they? I mean, the world has always scoffed. Peter talks about that in his second letter, that people, you know, just scoff and say, where's the second coming that you guys are talking about? It, it, there's no coming. The world's always gone on like this. Just stop with your doom and gloom message. There's scoffers today. And there's, we can scoff, right, even in our own hearts, can't we? That we, we just live like this... Christ isn't coming back. There's no judgment. I can, I can live my life as I choose. I can go on and pursue my life. Young people particularly, I want to just challenge you. The world's telling you, you can have it your way. You can go get your life. You can, you can live for, right, the things that all your unsaved friends are living for. You can do that. That world tells you, go for it. But see, that's just scoffing. That's just scoffing. It's now recognizing that God has promised us there's going to come a day when, when judgment comes on this, on, this, on this earth. But God has provided an ark. That's the glory of the gospel. Now, Peter will also talk about Jesus Christ as the, as the ark and baptism, which, which brings us uh, in, in union with Jesus Christ so that we're saved. And, and baptism is, is, is an amazing sign as well that we pass through the water of, of divine judgment in Jesus and we, are not, we don't perish, but we're rescued. Noah went through the flood, but he went through it and he was rescued. While God was judging evil, he was rescuing uh, Noah. And that's exactly what you find in the cross. That while God is judging evil in the cross, putting our sins upon Christ, he is rescuing us in Christ. That the same scene is a scene of divine judgment and divine deliverance. And friends, we have the confidence that this ark is sufficient to carry us all the way safely to the shore of a new heaven and a new earth. But you have to enter the ark. And you don't enter the ark, you're not born into it, you enter the ark, everyone enters by faith. And grace through Jesus Christ. You come by confessing your sin. There's just not another way. You come by asking for forgiveness. You come by trusting that God is willing in Jesus Christ to be merciful to you and to forgive you your sin. And God is willing and able in Jesus Christ to place the beautiful robe of Christ's righteousness upon you and to declare you innocent in his sight. All is a free gift. But friend, if you've never come to Jesus in that way, then I beg you to do it. There is an ark. It's been provided. But you have to enter. You have to enter. 
And then if you've done that, if you've entered that ark by faith in Jesus Christ, then, then daily remind yourself of where you are. We're not just cast adrift in a world of hard circumstances and difficult providences. We are the people who belong to Jesus Christ, and we are on the ark of God's salvation. And so we're, we're, we're going to experience heartache and hardship. We, we're in this world, but, but we're, we're on the ark. And, and, and everyone who's in the ark and on the ark, everyone is going to be rescued, come to the uttermost. Just think about the blessing of what it means to be a Christian by a sheer, the sheer grace of God. And, and so we can face the trials and, and the heartaches, and they're real, and they hurt, but they're not ultimate. And they don't define who you are. And they don't need to destroy your joy. They don't need to ruin your peace. I remember an old radio program. I don't, I don't know if it's still on or not. Uh, some of you may know, but it, the Haven of Rest. You remember the Haven of Rest program? And, and they would end, um, uh, the, the, they would end the, the program each week with a quartet, Haven of Rest quartet, singing, My Anchor Still Holds in the Haven of Rest. In Jesus, I'm safe evermore. And it always struck me. It was a young, young kid listening. That's a nice phrase. In Jesus, I'm safe evermore. I hope you know that to be true for you. That's what God has done in Jesus Christ. That's the story we have. Uh, that's the lesson we can learn from Noah's Ark. That's the truth we have from Noah's God. Let's pray. God in heaven, uh, this room is full of immortal souls. Every single one of us will live forever, either in the perfect glory of life in a new heaven and a new earth or in the awful horror of hell under the judgment of God. Not a single one of us, Lord, will escape but one of those two options. And Lord, I thank you for the grace that you give so that we could hear today how we can be rescued and we could be assured today, if we've come to Christ in faith, that we are saved to the uttermost. And we could be uh, convicted today, that if we've not come to Christ, that we are in grave danger. We are in grave danger. And so, Father, I, I pray that your word would speak, Lord, that the Holy Spirit would take your word and, and speak to every person here, young and old. And that we would know whether we are in the ark or outside the ark today. For judgment is coming, and rightfully so. And Father, I, I pray that we would all then make certain that we've come to Christ and, and have yielded ourselves to him, and that we then, Lord, can have the peace and the assurance that belongs to those who belong to Jesus. And no matter, Lord, what hard providences you bring in our along our way. Paul says they are light and momentary in comparison with the glory that will yet be revealed. So help us to live as, as Christians, as a people with an eternal perspective, people who are full of hope in the midst, Lord, of, of trials and difficulties. And one day, Lord, that hope will be uh, brought to all fulfillment as we see Jesus Christ. Father, if there are any here tonight who are not converted, I, I pray, Lord, that you would give them that grace that they may not be lost, that we all together would stand 
hand in hand in the presence of Jesus and worship him. In his name we pray, amen.